this year I'm coaching a few, of, uh, a few hockey teams. My boys all play hockey. I'm coaching a number of teams right now. And I have uh, one complaint about the local house league uh, that we're playing in. It's that uh, the jersey colors are too similar. Uh, I'm uh, red-green colorblind. And uh, there's not enough contrast in the jerseys. I can't tell who's on my team and who's not on my team. Like my, my one son plays, plays for Team Green, and when they play Team Red, like it's all over. I'm just like, hopefully I recognize the way that guy's skating because I don't know what team he's on. You know, hockey falls apart if you can't tell who you're up against, right? And, and so the, the red, the white, and the blue of the Montreal Canadiens, it, it needs to stand in stark contrast to the blue and white of the, of the Toronto Maple Leafs, or else there's a breakdown. If they're all wearing blue at the same time, the game falls apart. There needs to be a clear boundary around that. Who's on the team? Now imagine a hockey game where everyone was wearing whatever jersey they wanted, Imagine if there were no boards, there was no red line or blue line, and you could just skate wherever you imagine if the people watching from the game, you couldn't distinguish those who were watching the game from those who were playing the game. You couldn't figure out those who were in and those who were out. Imagine if everyone threw the rule book out the door and there was no clarity on how the game was supposed to be played. You see, in order to play the game, you need to have some sort of structure. Or else it all falls apart. And what's true in sports is true in the church. There need to be boundaries. Boundaries are a loving thing, are a God-given thing. God created Adam and what was the first thing he did? He put him within a boundary. He put him in a garden, a defined space. And then he took one of his ribs and created his wife and he created a boundary for that marriage and how that relationship was supposed to work, that they were to leave their father and mother and become one flesh. Boundaries are loving. Boundaries are good. Boundaries bring clarity. Loved ones, as we continue in our series called Church at a Crossroads, the church at Corinth had crossed a line. They had gone over the median. They were driving in the wrong direction. Now, Paul, you're going to find as we get into this letter, Paul was comfortable with gray area. He was okay. You know, food sacrificed to idols. Yeah, yeah, maybe you might want to eat it. Maybe you might not want to eat it. It kind of depends on the situation or the, or the circumstance. Should you remain single or should you pursue getting married? Well, it kind of depends on the person or the situation. Paul was very comfortable with gray area. He would have been really effective pastoring in today's day and age. Should you get vaccinated? Should you not get vaccinated? Should you wear a mask? Should you not wear? It kind of depends on the situation. Paul was more than comfortable with gray area. Chapter 5 verses 1 to 13 is black and white. A line has been crossed. God has laid out some boundaries for how human beings should engage with one another in relationship, particularly as it relates to sex. And a line had been crossed. Paul said in chapter 4, verse 21 at the very end, should I come to you in a spirit of gentleness or should I come to you with a rod? Remember he says, I'm your father. 
So we can do this the gentle way, or we can do this the rod way. And when it comes to this particular issue in the church, Paul's bringing the rod. And so he, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported. Paul's outraged. He's like, I can't even, I can't even believe that I'm having to address this with you. This is actually a thing in Corinth. He says that, uh, sexu- that there's sexual immorality of you of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. And Paul's response, there's no gray. It's very black and white. In verse 2, he says, let the one who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5, he says, deliver this man to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 13, purge the evil person. For, listen, there's really just one point to this message. Is that the church cannot tolerate sin within the body. Paul says the same thing four times. He says it practically and straightforwardly. Remove him. And then he says it uh, spiritually, deliver him to Satan. Then he says it metaphorically, remove the leaven from the dough. And then he, he emphasizes it biblically, purge the person from among you. Paul's like, take his jersey. He's not on the team, okay? He doesn't have access to the locker room. Take away his playbook. It, it's over. He's, he, he doesn't belong because of the way that this person is living. This is a message about church discipline, the importance of church discipline. Now, church discipline generally, what's happening right now, this is church discipline. You're all under church discipline. Because to, to, to be disciplined is to be a disciple. And we're all disciples. And it's part of learning. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're looking at the extreme end. When, when, all, when all the wrong paths have been taken and there's no other option but to have this person removed from the church. And we're going to see in this passage, Paul says the same thing four times. And I really want to summarize what church discipline is about in, in, in three major themes. Here's the first thing church discipline is about. Church discipline is about preserving the church's witness. Preserving the church's witness. Paul says, it's actually reported, I'm in verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now we're assuming that this is a stepmother, not a, not a biological mother. Otherwise, he would have been more descriptive. And we don't know whether divorce or death had separated this woman from her uh, original husband. We don't know if it was a polygamous relationship. We don't know what kind of a relationship it was. We don't even know if this couple right now is married. But here you have a man And it says that he has his father's wife. Has in the present ongoing tense. This is something that is going on regularly. They have an ongoing sexual relationship with one another. Paul says that even the pagans don't tolerate this. I was doing a little bit of reading. I couldn't read too much because it was just, it's just so disturbing what Roman sexual ethics were actually like. Like you think our world is out of control sexually and toxic and poisonous and just ruins lives and so distorted. The the Roman sexual ethic was, 
was even worse. Things, things were celebrated like, like same-sex relationships, but also things like pedophilia and dominance, really just as long as one partner is totally dominating over the other, dehumanizing the other person, that was assumed to be the ideal. This was the, this was the world in which the Corinthians were living. But the philosophers of this age, the poets of this age, the lawyers and politicians of this age, they, they had a boundary. They had a line. And the line was that you should not have these kinds of relations with your father's wife. Let me just give you three examples here. Here's Gaius, who was a famous politician. Cicero, who was a, a lawyer and a statesman. And, and Catullus, who was, a, who was a poet. So this is like, this is, you know, Justin Trudeau, uh, Madonna, and, and uh, you know, pick someone else in our culture who's really popular and influential. And their views on sexuality. And yet, these three people, all in, in their own writings, can condemn the kind of behavior that was happening in Corinth. This was messed up. The ESV translates it pagans, but the word there is actually Gentile. And Paul used that word in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, this is, this is tolerated among the Gentiles, but here's the thing. This isn't the letter to the Hebrews. This is the letter to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was predominantly Gentile. They got kicked out of the synagogue and Paul moved next door. And yeah, there were some Jewish Christians, but the church makeup was made up predominantly of Gentiles, of non-Jewish people. But Paul knows that their identity has fundamentally changed, that their national identity is, is now secondary to their spiritual identity. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 to 9, he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you're here today and you're of faith, if you're here today and you believe in Jesus Christ, that he suffered and died for you on the cross, that he became a curse in order to become a cure, if you believe that, then you are welcomed into the family of Abraham. That it's not your physical or genetic lineage that welcomes you into God's family, it's your faith. And God has established a new nation, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are all labels that used to be given just to the children of Israel, just to the physical descendants of Abraham. Now they're being applied to the whole church. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church was supposed to be living different from the world around them. But they were reflecting and even transgressing the sexual ethic of the culture there in Corinth. So one of the reasons why the church must practice discipline, one of the reasons why the church sometimes must say to a believer, you do not belong among us, you're no longer on the team, is so that the watching world can see 
that we're different. It says that this man had his father's wife, which is outlawed in not only by the Roman philosophers and politicians and poets at the time, but also in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 18. It's, it's explicitly stated that this, is, this goes against God's plan and God's law. And then Paul describes the church in verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. That's that word, puffed up. You're full of yourselves. You, you think you're big. You think you're special. You're just full of air. This is going on in your church, and yet you're arrogant. You're, you're boastful. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. They're arrogant. They were puffed up. This is that same word Paul used in chapter 4, verse 6, and then chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Somehow... They had minimized what was happening with this individual or somehow justified it or just flat out ignored it or rationalized it. Paul says, and you're puffed up. You're so arrogant talking like you're so spiritual and you're so mature and yet you're allowing this to happen in the church. We don't know exactly why they permitted it. There's a number of theories. I won't get into that, but remember, Paul, at the end of chapter 4, verse 20, wanted to contrast talk with power. The Corinthians, they were, all, they were good at the talk part. They had really great speakers. They had people who could prophesy. People were speaking in tongues. The talking was amazing, but the power was lacking. The power of actually living a transformed life, of, of living a life that stands out from the rest of the world. So Paul says, let him be removed. Verse 3, for though I am absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul here says, I, I'm absent, but I'm present. Because all believers, spiritually speaking, we're all connected. When we gather uh, to worship together in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're, our gathering transcends these four walls. Our, our gathering transcends geography. We're worshiping alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. Our worship even transcends chronology. We're worshiping with the saints, the, the great cloud of witnesses. We're all gathering around the greatness of who Jesus is. It says here in the power of, of Jesus and the name of Jesus in verse 4. So Paul says, when, when you read this letter publicly, I'm trusting that the same spirit that's inspiring me to write this is going to confirm this with the whole church. And I want you to take action in response. But notice the purpose of the action. It says at the end of verse 5 that the aim here is that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the second thing that church discipline is about. It's about preparing for judgment day. It's about preparing for judgment day. In verse 5, Paul says, deliver this man over to Satan. Now that seems like, wow, that seems pretty, pretty harsh. And what does it mean to deliver someone over to Satan? Does that mean that Satan can just kind of do with them uh, whatever, whatever they want? Well, just 
does that mean that he's now officially on Satan's team? Take, take the church jersey off and give him the, the satanic jersey? What, what is being described here? Well, remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, where Paul is really sharing everyone's testimony, where everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what happened to us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the beginning of all of our testimony. Then the verse goes on to say that we were resurrected to new life. But look, look it says, before we were in Christ, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, that's the devil, that's the evil one. And he's the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So all they were doing is saying, listen, if, if this person thinks that they can be a part of the church and live worse than the way the world is living, we need to just put him back in the world and say, you don't belong among the church. And so if you don't belong among the church, if you aren't assembled among the people of God, then you are just going along with the rest of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Paul said in verse 2, let this person be removed. And then he, he says in verse 4 that when you are assembled, he, he wants... And he's commanding that this individual be removed from the assembly. So the church is like this outpost of heaven, this, this small part of the world that is not living under the jurisdiction of Satan, is, is living under the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. And when Paul says, deliver this man over to Satan, all, all he's really saying is just remove him from the assembly. Then it says, for the destruction of his flesh... Now, at, at face value, when you just simply look at the words of this text, it sounds like Paul is saying that this person may die. But when you look at the broader context of, of what's being described here, notice how he uses the word uh, flesh, and then he uses it in contrast with the word spirit. He says, deliver this man over to Satan so for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, remember Paul said, I wanted to address you as spiritual, but I had to address you as of the flesh. He says, you want to be spiritual and you should be spiritual, but you're living fleshly. Paul, all throughout his writings, all throughout Romans, all throughout Galatians, is contrasting the flesh with the spirit, the flesh with the spirit, contrasting these two things. He even says in Romans 8 verse 13, he uses similar language. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The, the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh need to be put to death. That's what Paul is saying here. Here you are as the church, you're the assembled people of God. You need, to deliver, you need to remove this person from your assembly. You need to deliver them over to Satan. Why? For the purpose of having them put to death the fleshly desires that are controlling them right now. 
Paul wants those desires and this discipline, this harshness, this waking up to the reality of saying, I don't belong among the people of God because of the way I'm living. That is supposed to wake up this Christian. This is like the prodigal son who's eating slop and then all of a sudden comes to himself and says, I got to run back to my father. I can't be living like this anymore. But as long as this this professing believer is allowed to keep living the way he is living, he'll never come to that realization because he'll think, I'm doing just fine. He'll continue to rationalize or or justify or excuse his behavior. But Paul wants this person to be prepared for judgment day. His whole aim here is that this person who's professing to be saved would prove that they are saved, not just now, but it says here, on the day of the Lord. So we, we practice church discipline to prepare people for judgment day. The aim is always restoration. Paul wrote another letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We don't know if this is specifically about this person. I think that it is. But Paul says, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Whether it's this individual or another individual, Paul is describing a situation where the person is now sorrowful over their sin. They're not boasting. They're not arrogant. They've repented. And Paul says, so I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul's saying, welcome this guy back. If he's repented, if he's turned from his sin, if he's sorrowful, then welcome him back by all means. So what kind of a sin should warrant this kind of Action. Paul here is describing something that it's flagrant sexual immorality. It's ongoing, it's public, everyone knows about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul uses the same words, the, the same recommendation to handle someone who had committed heresy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it's used to it's it's used as a Church discipline is is put in place for people who are idle, who aren't working even though they are able-bodied and could. In Titus chapter 3, church discipline is applied for people who were divisive and destroying the church from the inside out. Now again, some of you are probably reading this and you're thinking, why didn't Paul Paul follow Matthew 18? Why not? Why didn't he have a private conversation with the person first and then bring some witnesses and then tell it? Because it wasn't private. (laughs) It was publicly known. Church discipline is supposed to happen with escalating levels of intensity. But that's when it's like a personal offense. When someone offends you, you go to them, you sort it out yourselves. If that doesn't work, you bring in another witness. If that doesn't work, then you involve the whole church. You, You wait to make things public until you've done everything that you can. But in this situation, they have already, it's already widely known. Paul knows about it. Everyone knows about it. And so Paul gets right to the heart of the matter and commands that this person be removed from the church. So church discipline is about preserving the church's witness. 
preparing for Judgment Day. And then lastly, it's about protecting the church from sin. It's about protecting the church from sin. In verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. He's, he, Paul still can't believe that this church is so arrogant. And they're boasting about how great their worship services are and how good the teaching is and the singing and the prophecy and the tongues. And Paul says, that's great that there's all this wonderful talking going on, but how about the living? That's wonderful that you're having these powerful services, but what about that guy who's sitting right there who is living in this way? Your boasting is not good. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may have a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would, not go, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul closes off here with an illustration about leaven and a clarification about a previous letter that he had written. I, I want to start by looking at verses 9 to 13 and then uh, close with looking at uh, the leaven illustration as we prepare to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. So let's jump down to verse 9 to 13 and we'll come back to verses 6 to 8. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. So the book of 1 Corinthians in your Bible actually isn't technically the book of 1 Corinthians. There was a, 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 a fair bit of correspondence that was going back and forth already. I had mentioned that before. Because, and it was pretty easy to get letters to Corinth because anyone who was going anywhere had to go through Corinth. That was part of the reason why it was such an influential city. So Paul had already written to them. And he had already warned them about sexual immorality because he knew where they were living. You know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Paul knew that kind of culture. So he said, listen, don't associate with anyone who is guilty of sexual immorality. Now, Paul was thinking, don't like associate in terms of like as a part of the church. And for whatever reason, whether it was an unfortunate misunderstanding or an intentional misinterpretation, People were saying, uh, we live in Corinth. If we're not going to associate with any sexual immoral people, like we can't go outside. If we got a shelter in place, if we're going to. And again, this was probably part of the anti-Paul group being like, what in the world is he talking about? This guy is not a qualified leader. We, we got to make our own way. And so they said, this can't be because... What does he mean we can't associate with sexual? So we've got to be out in the world. And then they follow their own logic to say, well, if we're out in the world, then we might as well associate with people within the church who behave this way. So Paul wants to, Paul wants to clarify this. In verse 10, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. 
Jesus said in John 17, verse 15 to 18, Jesus praying to the Father on behalf of us believers, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that there be a boundary, that there be a line. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. The the word of God is what sets the standard. Leviticus 18 was clear that what this man was doing was wrong. And Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The church is supposed to be on mission. We're being sent. We're supposed to accomplish, but we can't have someone who's trying to accomplish something opposite of what we're trying to do as a church. So Paul was clarifying that, listen, the standards in the church need to be different. Paul isn't saying, listen, we're not, we're not about judging the outside world. We judge within the church. Listen, some of us are thinking about, well, didn't Jesus say something about like plank in our eye and speck in someone else's eye and judge not lest you be judged? Listen, that's absolutely true. We all need to, to, we talked about this, about the danger of jumping to conclusions and assuming things about other people and knowing that our judgment is not perfect. But this is something, this is something crystal clear. The guy is living in this ongoing relationship there's no misunderstanding it and so of course check check for a plank in your own eye but but don't allow your commitment to being non-judgmental to to create this kind of atmosphere where sin is tolerated and maybe even celebrated within the church the church needs to be different that's what Paul is getting at Verse 11, but now I am writing to you, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That's the kicker. That's the key right there. Anyone who is claiming to be a Christian, and then look at the list, who's guilty of sexual immorality. That's what he's talking about. Then it says, or greed, or an idolater, or a reviler. That's someone who slanders other people, tears them down with their words. A drunkard. Or swindler. I think some of us are kind of uncomfortable with some of the things on the list there. Living where we do and when we do. I mean, greed's a big deal, isn't it? How many high-profile church discipline situations do we hear about involving greed. Hardly any, right? Like, is that even a category for us? How about, how about slander? How about a, a, an ongoing pattern of tearing other people down and talking, them behind, talking behind their back and discrediting other people's character? Loved ones, these are the, sometimes we just, we, we turn sexual sin into like this like super category of sins. That's like, that's when you're being really bad. And what Paul does, he does this uh, here in chapter five, he does it again in chapter six, is he takes sexual sin and he puts it in a list of more what Jerry Bridges calls more respectable sins. So the, the church needs to be protected, not just from sexual sin, but from, but from slander, but from reviling, from drunkenness, from 
greed. He says, anyone who bears the name of brother but does these things, he says, don't even eat with them. Now, obviously, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. That's very clear. Like, don't invite, like, because the Lord's Supper is intended for people who are followers of Jesus Christ. So don't pass the bread and the cup to them. But Paul's saying something even more significant. He says, your social interactions with this person can't be happening under the guise or the assumption that, hey, you're okay. Everything, everything's cool between us. That there actually needs to be, now it's, it's really delicate, it's difficult because we want to win this person back. We want to restore this person. And so our conversations can be loving and can be uh, congenial, but they always need to be like, let's talk about your repentance. Let's, let's talk about returning to the Lord and making things right. You can't just sit down and assume, like you can't just talk about the leaves. You, you, you can't just, you can't just, like people's, you know, social media posts, like everything is normal. Everything's not normal. This person's been removed from the church. And so in Paul's culture, the way to show that everything's normal, the way to show that, hey, we're good, we're good, is that we sit down and we eat together. In our culture, eating's part of that. There's a number of other ways. And so we, we, need, to, we need to think that through if, if we ever get to this point as a church as a church family. Paul says, verse 12, well, what do I have to do with judging outsiders, not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, God judges those outside. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you. It's in quotation marks there. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy multiple times. I just listed them all there for you. I didn't even count them. That this is being used in the book of Deuteronomy as Paul is, sorry, Paul, Moses is preaching to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land and he's setting a new standard. He's saying, we used to live in Egypt. We used to live among the nations. God has made us a new nation. Here's the new way. And he laid out all of these boundaries, all of these guidelines, all of these rules. And at the end of each section, he's saying, if anyone doesn't do this, pur- he's talking about the death penalty at this point because it was a theocracy. He's saying, purge the evil person from among you. And Paul is not recommending the death penalty here, but he is recommending that the church take this level of seriousness of what the community of faith is supposed to look like and tolerate. What are the boundaries? But let's go back now to verse 6 and look at this illustration that he uses about leaven. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven or yeast is the thing you put in bread. It's actually living. And uh, they didn't have yeast in, um, uh, in, in Paul's day. And so they would take a little, they'd make dough and then they would take a little pinch of the dough and set it aside. And then that dough, they'd just leave it and kind of let it rot and, and, and ferment And then when they're making new dough, they would add a little bit of the old dough and then take a little bit out for the next week. And so you would have this older and older, this fermented dough. This is how sourdough uh, works. This is the, uh, leaven is the difference between your bread looking like this or your bread looking like this. This is the difference that leaven makes. This is legit sourdough, so it's made from old uh, old dough and when the people of Israel were being set free from 
uh, Egypt, God commanded that they eat unleavened bread. One, because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They didn't have time for it to uh, ferment. And what happens is, I had to look this up. I was actually talking to some bakers this week to try to figure out how this works. But the, 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 the yeast or the leaven actually eats away at the flour in the dough and creates these air pockets. That's what causes the dough uh, to rise. And the, the message here in this little saying that Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, is that small things matter. Small things matter. Jesus used the illustration of leaven uh, two different times. One in a positive way. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So it's sort of like the parable of the mustard seed. It's this small thing, but it has a big impact. Jesus used it in a positive way. He used it in a negative way in Matthew 16, verse 6. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, if you let some of the false teaching of the Jewish religious leaders come into your life, that will spread. The idea is that small things matter. I was talking to Faith and Manuela Toma uh, this, uh, this week, and uh, Faith works in a bakery, and, and uh, Manuela uh, bakes a, a fair bit, and I was, I was like, talk me, like, walk me through this whole leaven thing. How does uh, yeast work? And how does this uh, play out? And she shared with me uh, this story. She said, a few months ago, I made cinnamon roll dough, and the recipe called for an overnight rise in the fridge. It was about three cups of flour and two and a quarter teaspoons of instant yeast. I made the dough, put it in the fridge, and kept putting it off until the next day because I was busy with other things, thinking that it would be fine by the time I got to it. When I eventually looked at it, it was way more than double the size as the recipe called for and started to pour out of the bowl. And then she sent me a picture. The more time the dough spent ignored in the fridge, the more opportunity the yeast had to feed and grow, affecting the whole dough ball. I think it illustrates that choosing not to or waiting too long, all I asked for is information on the, on the but this is gold right here. Manuela teaches over in Hope Kids, this is gold right here. I think it illustrates that choosing not to or waiting too long to confront even the slightest bit of moral sin within the church is exactly what is needed that sin is to grow. Yeast really just needs time and quiet. In the recipe I used, the yeast accounted for just under 2% of the volume of flour and was still able to inf- uh, to affect the entire bowl of dough. Just 2%. All it needed was time and quiet. That's all it takes. Listen, in an individual's life, all it takes for sin to spread in your own life is time and quiet. All it needs for sin to spread in the church is just time and quiet. Paul says, cleanse out the leaven. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Here's the instructions that were given to the people of Israel. As the Passover was happening, when the people were, so we're going to look at Exodus 12 here on the screen. As the people were 
getting ready to leave, God had already said, you're going to do this every year. This is, such a, this is a nation-forming moment. We're going to establish a festival and a ceremony that we're going to practice every year. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. Leaven, it wasn't just that they were in a hurry, but leaven needed to be left behind because that leaven, that dough, had been made when they were slaves. And God was doing a new thing, and he was turning them into a new people, and they weren't bringing the old with them. And so they had to get rid of everything that was old to welcome in that which was new. The people of Israel were allowed to eat leavened bread for a year, but then every year, everything stopped. There was a restart. And all of the old leaven went as a reminder of, we used to belong to Egypt. We used to be slaves. That was the old us, but now we are new. And I love what Paul says. This is incredible Christian theology right here. He says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And he says that you may be a new lump. And then he says, as, as you really are. He says, cleanse out the old leaven so that you will become a new lump and unleavened. But he says, as you already are. You see, this is how Christianity works. We're supposed to become what we already are. We live holy lives and we work to live holy lives. Why? Not so that we will become saints, but because we already are saints. We try to live and reflect. We try to, to live and follow our Father, not so that we can earn adoption as sons and daughters, but because we already are sons and daughters. We forgive as God has forgiven us, not so that we can be forgiven, but because we've already been forgiven. So much of the Christian life is just, just growing into the clothes we've been given. You know, you, you get something at Christmas time, remember this as a kid, and you, the sleeves are like way down here, and they're like, well, you know, it's yours, just grow into it, right? And that's, that's the Christian life. We have been given sainthood, we've been given holiness, we've been given forgiveness, we've been given freedom. And so our obedience is just living it, living out the identity that we have been given. Just look at verse 7 again. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You already are a new lump, church at Corinth. You already are a new lump, Hope Church. So live as you really are. Here's why. Here's why we've been made a new lump. Verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Love was the Passover wasn't just about the bread, right? It was about the lamb. And every family had, had a lamb, and, and, and that lamb was killed and then blood from that lamb was put on his like a brush and it was spread over the doorpost because the, the angel of the Lord was, was coming through the city and it was going to destroy the firstborn of, of everyone in Egypt. And as the people were, 
were, were dining that night, as they're eating their unleavened bread, as they're lying down and going to sleep, knowing the judgment that is coming, they're trusting. And what are they trusting in? They're trusting that the lamb died instead of me. The lamb died instead of me. And loved ones, Christ is our Passover lamb. And we gather together and we have a meal that we share with unleavened bread. And our calling as Christians of people, the lamb died instead of us. His blood is over our doorpost. He was judged in our place. And loved ones, our, our, what we remember is that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That is what has made us unleavened. That is what has made us a new lump. And so we have to cast off that which is old and live into the identity that we have been given. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us. Paul here contrasts malice and evil in verse 8 with sincerity and truth. And so God, I pray in Jesus' name, God, that we would sincerely come before you. That we would hold these symbols in our hands that we would be filled, Lord, if there are things that we need to repent of, that we would repent of them. Lord, that we would not allow leaven to, to grow or to spread in our own lives, that it would not grow or spread in our church because Christ, our Passover lamb, the lamb died instead of us and made us new. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not return to slavery, that we would not return to the old ways but that we would live lives that are set apart for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.